0: This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. This is the first Sunday in Lent. Uh, Time where we uh, look uh, to return to God, to be honest about where we have strayed away from God and living by God's will and God's love. And it's an opportunity to turn back and walk the path, the path that Jesus himself will take to the cross. As God stands next to us, So in this time of Lent, we stand next to Christ, the man, Jesus from Nazareth, and pledge ourselves anew to be the kind of community that he called us to be. The story of Paul is a, it's almost too easy to tell that story in Lent, and yet that's what we're going to do. We're going to Talk about the story of Paul's road to Damascus and what happened there, and we're going to reflect on um, why that mattered. But I want to unpack this story a little bit for us and lean back into the Isaiah where Isaiah says um, that we don't that we will see what we have never been told and we will understand what we've never heard. And there seems to be this recurring theme throughout the gospel, uh, Isaiah with the gospels and acts, uh, this echo that somehow though it's right in front of us, we refuse to see it. Somehow though it's echoing all around us, we refuse to hear it. That we're so stuck in our own idea of righteousness or our own dedication to chaos that we won't dig in to the heart of God within us, for we have the power to change that in God. John Wesley says God reaches for all of us. All we have to do is open and see. What we will see is not always so easy. So this is the beginning path of Paul. We have Paul heading to the city of Damascus. Paul has been persecuting the Christ believers. There's no real Christians yet. These are still Judeans, Judean people, very like um, the Messianic Jewish folks of today, who are steeped in the wisdom and the culture and the languages of Judea. And who worship in that way. And have come across this new way to understand through this new rabbi, this new teacher, this man from Nazareth. And these Christ believers are still trying to understand who this Jesus even is. And there's a lot of different ideas going on. And it is a tremendous threat to the temple system. Because the temple demands the authority unified to them. And Jesus has taught something else, something radical, that it's not about power and money, that it's not about um, oppressing others. He has returned us to Isaiah, where we are called out when we oppress our neighbor. The whole system in Jerusalem is about oppressing our neighbor. It was terrifying to them. And Paul is a very righteous man. He believes in the work that he's doing. He has set everything aside in order to show people what is right and make sure that the letter of the law is adhered to. There's nothing to suggest here that Paul is intentionally acting to be evil. This is not the Joker character from the, oh gosh, Batman series. Right? This is not somebody who is deciding on purpose just to be evil. He believes in what he is doing, which makes him all the more dangerous, right? When we are so sure of ourselves and we're willing to set aside all the values that we believe in do not harm, for example in order to make sure that your zealotry is done. What we don't see in our English reading of the text is some of the context from long ago, some of the ways that hearers at the time would have heard this story. Beginning with this first line, Paul is spewing out threats. Well, this is breathing out. <sighs> you ever been around someone with really, really bad breath? Yeah. Yeah. My sister, oh my gosh, she was so sick. And I was tucking her in and getting her set. And she didn't have much energy, and she turned to me, and she looked at me, and she kind of, her face, and she said, you have really bad breath. (laughs) (sighs) So I'm like, sorry, sorry. But that idea builds here to give us a sense of sort of the toxicity at work, that Paul, or how about sitting across the table from your angry aunt or uncle who is so angry and so vehement and so zealous that they're talking and they're literally like spitting out as they talk, and you're trying to move the Brussels sprouts away from them so that it doesn't actually get spat on? I'm making jokes, but this is awful. Paul is dangerous, He is arresting people and dragging them out of their homes and dragging them to trial. And he is doing it with a bad spirit. Numa, the breath, the breath of God, is a good spirit deep within us. The Holy Spirit is deeply good and it animates us to do deeply good things. There was an understanding at that time that there were different kinds of spirits. And if you're not careful, you don't have the Holy One. You have an evil spirit. We still have lingering language in our culture about this. Like when we say, what possessed you to do that? Or I never want to be in the power of that guy. We get a sense that some people are animated by evil instead of good that there is literally some sort of sickness or brokenness, and they understood that as an a, a, a evil spirit. And it could get on you and hurt you. We, we talk about how back then <clears throat> it was, you weren't allowed to look people in the eye if you were below them. You had to be at least sort of on par with them. And one of those reasons is because you might be suspected of having a bad spirit and if you look at someone else in the eye, you could infect them. They could catch it. It could literally harm them. And we'll talk more about the evil eye coming up in the next few uh, sermons because it's a really important piece to get a sense of what's happening here. So, Paul is spewing out dark and evil forces. There is not the holiness in him. He is a danger to others physically, legally, and spiritually. The next uh, verse tells us that he was binding them. This is rendered in the perfect passive particle, participle. So he's like forcibly leading them. He's having them bound. And this is matched by the subjunctive text Um, Of um, the breathing and the spewing and having them bound that they may be taken into Jerusalem and we think in terms of the spirit, this dark spirit and his spewing it out what is it indeed that is doing the binding? How dangerous is this dark spirit to these Christ believers literally being wrapped up in this as we would say today, toxic energy that it gets on you It's hard to clear it away. The spiritual element of this is important to know, not because we come from the first century and we believe in that spirits will attack us, but because we do understand that there is more to the physical body in this world than we know. And we do seek language to explain sometimes feelings, I just had a bad feeling in there, we'll say. Well, this was their way to talk about it. And they had a robust language, like the Eskimos with millions of words for snow. They had a robust spiritual language. So, all of a sudden, Light shines around him. He is walking to Damascus. He's got his men with him who are arresting both men and women. And the fact that women are mentioned here is a really good example of how powerful a force women were in those early days because it wasn't polite to mention women. Women weren't disappeared to be mean to women. Women were disappeared for politeness sake. It was dishonoring to bring a woman out in public and sort of have the public gaze on her as if she wasn't protected or loved. We don't think of it this way, but they did. And the fact that that is named here is important. Here comes uh, uh, Paul, and great light shines down. So where does light come from? It comes from the sun, right? If you are a first century person, light comes from the heart. Light is a heart thing from a spirit. That big sun, that's just the eye of a spirit shining down. The eye of God comes from the heart of God, shining the light from the heart of God through the open eye like a flashlight. Out come the particles of light. That's why the dark spirits were so dangerous, because what is coming out isn't light. But there are still things emanating from the heart and coming out and falling on whatever you are looking at. So when the eye of heaven opens, when light comes down, everybody in the first century would know that God just opened God's eyes. That light is coming and flowing from God's heart. And there is a voice from in that beautiful, beautiful light that surrounds Paul. And it says, why are you harassing me? And harassing here is a word to persecute, to cause to flee. Literally so bad that people have to run. Why are you doing this? And at first, Paul doesn't know who he's talking to. Who are you, Lord? He knows it's a spirit. He knows it's pretty powerful. It's coming from heaven. He knows it's light. All his Judean training would tell him it was God. He would not yet have an understanding that it was Jesus himself. Jesus speaks and identifies himself. Paul falls to the ground. His legs literally give out from under him. In the early Methodist stories of conversion experiences, we hear this all the time. Your legs literally give out from under you. It's like someone has just bent your brain in half. Everything you thought you knew was correct isn't after all. You don't even have the ability to process it. You can only process so many things at one time. That's why you have to stop talking to the person in the side seat of the car when there's a tricky traffic situation. You don't have enough energy to both talk to them and keep that conversation going and drive safely. And so we all be quiet and we drive and then we go, wait, what were we talking about again? Paul's legs give out. He falls to the ground. Paul says, And Jesus says, why are you harassing me? And here this is in the present indicative active second person. Jesus says, you are doing it. This isn't passive. This isn't somebody else's agency. This is on Paul. You're doing it, buddy. What do you think you're doing? So... Next thing you know, his men who are there with him, they come to get him up off the ground. All they know is Paul just sort of collapsed on the road. And the NIV and many of our Bibles translate that as Paul got up. No, that's not Paul's agency here. Paul is doing the harassing, but he is helped up by his friends. He cannot get up. They come and do it. They help him up. And then it tells us Paul opened his eyes. Again, this is a perfect tense. The, applica- the, the idea here is that um, this is something new that happened in a new way. It's changed forever. Something has changed Something has changed. Paul opens his eyes, and this isn't passive, like you know, your eyes open. We say that sometimes. Oh my gosh, am I asleeping? And then my eyes opened, and I was was like, the eyes have the agency. This is again Paul's agency. Paul opened his eyes, perhaps for the first time in this new way, and guess what he sees? Darkness. Perhaps for the first time the truth of his own heart. Perhaps for the first time, an awareness that all is not well inside him. That there is a brokenness. He is a danger to others. If he looks at them, he can cause them spiritual harm. He cannot take care of himself. And he is not the man of God that he believed he had been. The next part of the story, he goes into Damascus, and God appears to a man named Ananias, and says, hey, I need you to help this guy out. And we can, we're going to talk about that more next week. But we can imagine for Ananias, again, if we're tuning into the layers of this, it's not just the legal trouble he feels, he fears. It's not just the um, physical trouble he fears. Those things we are all very uh, well versed on. There is a spiritual danger even to being in the same room with Paul darkness, toxicity, bad energy, they're contagious. It'd be better if he wasn't there at all. And how Ananias deals with that, we'll see next time. We grapple with the spirit of rage. We grapple with today. The anger and volatility of those we care about. Internet trolls. Frustrated members of the family. Angry, mean conversations back and forth where we believe our part of the conversation is right and so it's okay that we render it out there meanly. That we yell. What spirit is possessing you? If we insist on looking at each other as you're good and I'm bad or I'm good and you're bad, what type of spiritual world are we saying exists? And is that what Jesus said? Or did Jesus call us to love our enemy? What good have you been to your enemy this week? It's easy enough to be good to somebody who's like-minded. You can sit around the table and both just let loose and vent about how horrible the other guy is. But what good have you been to that guy? How have you stretched yourself? Jesus doesn't strike Paul dead. Or cast him off into the wilderness just to be possessed forever. Jesus calls Paul to repentance. It's not an easy thing. Oh, I totally want to tell you all about the story of David and Saul. My inner clock is saying, time is running out, Roshenda. Paul and Saul, David and Saul were enemies by Samuel 24. There, Paul, uh, David has fled and has 600 men and he is sometimes joining the Philistines who are Saul's enemy, King Saul, the first king of Israel. And David, the young upstart, the young warrior, is causing trouble, raiding the villages, uh, creating petty um, allegiances... Saul has 3,000 men out looking for Paul, out looking for David, and David and his 600 men are hiding in the cave, and Saul comes in because he has to go, you know? Sometimes we all gotta go, and you gotta go, you gotta go. Saul goes into the cave to use the restroom. David and his men are all back there. Saul is unguarded, unguarded, unprotected, and clearly an enemy. And the Lord had said to David, I'm going to deliver Saul into your hands. This was his moment. All 600 of his soldiers are like, David, like this is right, this is right now, this is the time, he's right there, he's not even paying any attention. Perhaps David should kill Saul right now. Instead, David sneaks over to him and he grabs some hem of his garment and he cuts a piece of it off. Then he goes back into hiding. Saul finishes up whatever he was doing, and out he goes, and David follows him with a piece of cloth, and says, I am not your enemy. If I'd wanted to, I could have killed you right in there. And you know what they feared more than death at that time? Dishonor. David would have so dishonored Saul. How embarrassing. Saul not only feared David because David was clearly the anointed next king, but because they lived in a world of violence where to change who got to be in power was a bloody battle where one group annihilated the other that lost. Saul weeps When David shares that he spared Saul's life, Saul says, oh my goodness, what voice do I hear? Do I hear David? It's like it comes through out of our zealous, so sure that we know what everything is going on, that David spared him. He knows in his guts that David is gonna be the new king and that's not gonna be long. They're not going to have it out that day, but it's not going to be long. And David, Saul asked him to promise not to dishonor him. When that time comes, don't dishonor me. Don't destroy my name. Don't kill my descendants. Sometimes we fight so hard because we don't know how to get along. It's the most obvious statement in the whole world but we don't know how to get along. And we have to figure it out. And being a Christian person means that you have to do good to your enemy. That's probably the hardest thing to think of ever. And maybe it's not you. Maybe your enemy is so hard for you that you're gonna step away and let someone else take care of that enemy, but you are gonna pray for them. And you are gonna pay it forward by caring for somebody else's enemy. Open your ears and open your eyes. Do it on purpose. Take a look at where you are. John Wesley says, who among us wouldn't change everything we are inside, our hearts and our minds, to feel that deep love and walk the walk with Christ? This Lent, I invite you, walk the walk with Christ. And if the idea of doing good to your enemy is like a searing rod in your being, wrestle with that, you might be right. Sometimes you have to bless that situation and walk away. But other times, you can do something that can change everything. There's no easy answers. The Bible's not a prescription. There's no checkbox. We get story after story, after story, find yourself there. Step up to loving God first. Be good to those who hate you. And we will find that beautiful kingdom. Praise be to God. Let's take a minute and just breathe the good spirit of God, the light spirit in deep into our bodies, so that we can feel that light coursing through every cell. Amazing God, unbind us from all that is hateful, even our own hate. Dear God, unbind us from all unrighteousness, even our own unrighteousness. Amazing God, bind us to you and your love. Let us be your spirits, alive in this physical place, in this physical body, for the good of your world. Amen.